Not Old Better Show on KSCW. The show covering all things health, wellness, culture, and more. The show for all of us who aren't old, we're better. Each week we'll interview superstars, experts, and ordinary people doing extraordinary things, all related to this wonderful experience of getting better, not just older. Now, here's your host, the award-winning Paul Vogelzang. So great to be with you today, and good morning, and welcome to the Not Old Better Show on KSCW. I'm your host, Paul Vogelzang. And as part of our Smithsonian Associates Year of Music interview series, we have an excellent interview with Saul Lillianstein. Saul Lillianstein is a former student of Leonard Bernstein. In 2005, the Wagner Society of Washington, D.C. bestowed the Society's Award for Uncommon Contributions upon Lillianstein, who is honored to join past recipients like Placido Domingo. Saul Lillianstein is a lover of fine music and loves the Beatles for their very fine music. We'll talk to Saul Lillianstein about what gave John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr the power to reshape the pop music world of the 1960s and the whole world for the next several decades. Beyond the mod fashion, the cheeky Liverpudlian humor, and the friendly personalities that set a generation of girls screaming in adoration. The Beatles as a quartet, their achievement as music makers, is the most lasting cultural legacy we have. Saul Lillianstein takes us on a joyful and serious look at the Beatles' music, their stories, the musical roots and influences, and its relationship to the tumultuously exciting period of social change that provided a backdrop to their years at the top of the charts. Musical recordings and film clips are going to be talked about in today's program, too. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show on KSCW via internet phone and shaping a generation, <laughs> Saul Lillianstein. Saul Lillianstein, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Paul. It's uh, going to be a pleasure talking to you now and doing this program afterwards. Oh, my gosh. I am so excited. I, you know, I love the Beatles. I know so many on our audience love the Beatles music. And you have an interesting take on the Beatles' music, given your musical background and history. We're going to get into all of that, but why don't we start by just having you tell us briefly about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation and maybe how you're going to be using Zoom to engage our audience, because I think we're all on Zoom these days. Right. Well, it's uh, <clears throat> the thing about Zoom is that what I want to avoid is being a talking head. You know, that's one of the problems with I guess some of the Zooms I've been doing, and sure, surely a lot that I've seen, is that people up there just talking. And I'm fortunate here because I'm going to let the Beatles do as much of the work as possible and me do as little. That is, there's so much which is available through YouTube, or, I mean, through you know iTunes and YouTube and stuff like that, so that when I describe a piece and and I really want to do, you know, digging into pieces of music, you know, truly that's what interests me most of all, because I spent my life as a musician. Uh, what I really want to do is to be able to do that, but at the same time, not just talk about it, have them sing it, play it, and everybody observe that that's, it's going on as we're doing it. And so I've got to ask you, because, uh, you know, the Beatles music has just endured but let's go back to the start. What was it about the Beatles' music that just from the very start made their sound different? The thing is, on the very start, 
which is uh, before they came to America, let's say, you know, 1961, 1962, they were thrilling people in Liverpool and then throughout England. And they were doing it basically not by not by performing their own music then, but by covering, because that's what bands did. You know, you played other people's music. So what it was was how well they did it, how much life there was in them, you know, how just fabulous their performances were when they were doing things by Little Richard or Chuck Berry. And then when they started doing their own music as well, uh, you had this element of, you know, creativity, which is, it really is extraordinary, Paul, because, um, you know, we think of things as being golden oldies, which means, oh, they have to be revived, constantly revived. That's not true with the Beatles. They've never had to be revived. They've been there now for, what is it, about 60 years? For 60 years, and it hasn't gone away. You know, even... Johann Sebastian Bach went away for around 30 years before he was rediscovered. Uh, the Beatles have never gone away. And so I, I don't have any line between one kind of music and another. <clears throat> I mean, I guess I really do. I hate the sound of an electrified Hawaiian guitar. All right. But that's, aside from that, I, I've erased all of the other lines. And uh, what matters to me now is quality of music. And I'd say there may be 40 or 50 songs of the Beatles. I'm pulling that number out of thin air. <laughs> Some of your listeners will say, how could he say that? There are 90 or 100, they might be right. But there's a sizable chunk of imperishable pieces of music. And that's what interests me most of all. I just love them to pieces. <laughs> I do as well. Ask me something, Ask me something else. Ask me <laughs> well, good. Well, you know, their, their music, of course, had this very distinctive British accent about it. But there was just something I remember just being happy, you know, as I listened. And, and I think all of us probably feel that way, that we had this familiarity, this... Um, very positive warmth at the heart of their of their music. I wonder if you tell us what what you think that is. Well, especially their early music before, <clears throat> let's say, before uh, a darker spirit was found in John's music, and that comes a little bit later, as we know. Their earlier music is all joyful music. It's very interesting that when somebody came to them <clears throat> during the time of the Vietnam War. And asked, uh, how come you don't write any anti-war songs? And I think it was George who said, all of our music is anti-war music. And in a sense, that's it. All of their music is saying, you know, make love, not war. And that's part of the, the, warmth, the warm spirit we feel. I think the other thing was that even though there was no question, there was something exotic about them for Americans, because they sound, they don't sound like Americans. Even if the rock, there's a rock and roll beat, <clears throat> they don't sound like Americans. The other thing is, is that they really have, um, you could say, almost tributes to the music of American rock and roll stars that they loved. For instance, Buddy Holly. Say Buddy Holly of the Crickets was the name of the band. The Crickets. The Beatles chose the name The Beatles. Crickets and Beatles. That's not an accident, Paul. 
that even by the choice of their name, and then you can sometimes find in their own music. <clears throat> do you know? Do you know? Uh, 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 Buddy Holly's Peggy Sue. Yeah, I'll play a little bit of that, and and then we'll go to something by the Beatles. Okay, you first. <laughs> Go ahead. Peggy Sue, a classic of uh, Buddy Holly and the Crickets. Saul's going to talk to us a little bit about some of this uh, Beatles music. and Right. Right. So you... you right. Uh, now, about Peggy Sue. All right. It's in the key of A major. Many of you aren't don't care about that, but there's a place in it where he sings, Peggy Sue, I love you. Pretty, pretty, pretty Peggy Sue. And he moves unexpectedly to an F major chord. It's not in the key of A major. It's the most innovative moment in that song. Now, when the Beatles say in their song, P.S. I love you, at almost an identical spot, they do the same change. They do the exact same chord change that Buddy Holly did. So I think, again, that's not an accident. But then the biggest one is the name of their song. P.S. I love you. Is that what you put at the end of a letter? Yeah. But also it's P.S. Peggy Sue. I love you. You know, the initials Peggy Sue. So in all these different ways, uh, they are tipping their hat <clears throat> to Buddy Holly. And that song. I just what I think anyway. Mm-hmm. Is that far fetched you out there? No. I think it's far fetched. No, I think that and, and that brings me to this question about this really kind of fulfilled some of their personal ambitions about music too. They loved Chuck Berry, they loved Little Richard, they loved Buddy Holly, and so they they would give a, a slight nod because I, I really didn't even realize that about the PS I love you, that that could be a reference to Buddy Holly's Peggy Sue. And that personally really was something that was important to them to just give a little bit of a nod to those that came before them and right, yeah. give a little bit of a tribute. Yeah. Uh-huh. They were very gracious in that manner. And think about this. P.S. I love you. Peggy Sue, I love you. Peggy. Buddy Holly says, Peggy Sue, I love you. Beatles have a song, P.S. I love you. Paul. <laughs> the, the handwriting, right, the music writing is on the guitar. You know, it's right there. And he's not, then a little bit later, look how uh, John, uh, John really, he really liked the, the song uh, Over the Rainbow, uh, Harold Arlen's Over the Rainbow. <laughs> For instance, the song The Nowhere Man, you know, you're a real nowhere man. It doesn't sound at all related to Somewhere Over the Rainbow. But John particularly took the structure of Over the Rainbow, which is descending scale. It goes da dee da 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 dee da dum. Both songs do that. It's so unusual to hear that that a song is based on that. Uh, that you know, it's very likely it was <clears throat> on John's mind when he wrote that. But uh, think about the song. Uh, uh, Across the Universe. What a beautiful song that is. You know, he didn't like the way uh, it was arranged by Phil Spector. But it's really beautiful what Phil Spector did. You know, Phil Spector had a weird life, but he did some good arranging. (laughs) Now, Across the Universe. If we had Peggy Sue, I Love You, Across the Universe is almost another way of saying Over the Rainbow. You know, Over a Rainbow. 
cross universe. So even the title that he used is, I think, a reference to uh, the Harold Arlen song. And if you think about it, you know how in the middle of uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow it goes, Someday I wish upon a star and wake up with a cloud above you. You know that phrase. That's a, you know, the bridge. Well, that exact phrase is quoted note for note in the middle of Across the Universe. Right? Where is it going out? Like, here it comes. Like, endless rain above the... Here it is, right at the beginning of the song. And the quote from uh, the bridge section of Over the Rainbow. There you are, no accident. Another kind of a tribute. It's all... It is just all so fascinating. We're with Saul Lilienstein. Saul Lilienstein will be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates coming up September 24th. It's an all-day event. We're going to have links on the website of where you can find out more information about the Beatles presentation by Saul Lilienstein. It's titled The Beatles from Liverpool to Legend, a Musical Celebration. Let's jump a little bit ahead and talk about kind of the what was going on during the times of the music that the Beatles were creating? Because we're in the 60s. We had social freedom discussion. We had the basically the the war was raging on. And as you say, George Harrison's comment was about all their music being anti-war. They really were at the heart yeah, of this yeah. kind of new, youthful and optimistic establishment. They they really very much were driving that they during were. those times. It I mean, was social I mean, freedom. They drove it in mm-hmm. ways, some of the ways that had nothing to do with music at all. I remember the day that my uh, teenage son, I guess he, who was just about 13, came home one day with a Beatles cut. That was, you know, that was, well, around 1963, 1964. He was a youngster, and he was expressing a kind of freedom for me, freedom for my generation. I owe him a lot, my son, because I wasn't listening to Beatles music. I was busy in my work. I was conducting opera, and you do that, it takes 24 hours a day out of your day. And one day, it was, had to be 1967. He said, Dad, I know you're very busy, but I just put on the earphones. Just listen to this for a minute. So, of course, I said, all right. And I put on the earphones, and I heard for the first time in my life, Lucy and the Sky with Diamonds. And I recognized the level of invention that was going on right from one ear to the other and not missing my brain in the middle. I recognized it. I was thrilled by it. And I've been interested in, and interested is a terrible academic word. I've loved the Beatles ever since then and just learned more and more and just delving as deeply as I can into who they were and what they did. And that bit of social freedom that I that was going on in my own household was <clears throat> only the paradigm of, I think, an entire generation. I'd be teaching a college course in those days. I walked into the room and it was like I, I walked into a, uh, it's like I walked into a flower garden. Everyone is dressed in different colors. <laughs> it was magnificent. It, it, was, it was magnificent to see that they just didn't care about my standards 
or what the school might have thought was the proper way to do, you know, to dress to go to school. Or they just were free as birds. And I think the Beatles did that for them more than anything else in their lives. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates programs here on KSCW, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our KSCW audience can explore our website for more information at notold-better.com. Let's talk for a second about their collaboration. And, and really, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus because I know they all collaborated with one another. They all were generating music and songs. But it was Lennon and McCartney who really had this stylistic uh, almost back and forth. And, you know, we've had, certainly from your world, you know, wonderful collaborators like Gilbert and Sullivan from opera. You know, we have Duke Ellington in the jazz world and his collaborator, Billy Strayhorn, George and Ira Gershwin, all of these great, great collaborations. But Lennon and McCartney, really, they kind of took it to a new level, both musically and personally. Was it teamwork? Was it rivalry? What led to their productivity well, and they're just brilliant well, first of all i, I got to tell you that when you said from you know your world my world mm-hmm, this is my yeah. world <laughs> this is also my world since i've erased the line <laughs> since i've erased the line that you can't even find an equator line <laughs> okay. in my music you know it's all one world <laughs> okay but what you're mentioning is you know, really you know this is at the heart of the beatles is that relationship between lennon and mccartney now the thing is that they broke that they eventually broke up. We can't call that a tragedy. We know what tragedy is in this world, Paul. That's not a tragedy. But there are elements about it which are like classic tragedy. That is what you have to have to make a, you know, a classic tragedy is that the, the very factor that is best about, let's say, the tragic hero and what is worst about him are combined and you cannot take some scissor and cut away one and just leave the other. They're both there, struggling with each other at the same time. And what was greatest about the Lennon and McCartney arrangement was how marvelously could, they could collaborate, how they could sit on the back of the bus while they're driving from one place to another and write music while they were doing that. But at the same time, inherent in who they were was like what you find in a men's locker room, which is a rivalry, uh, you know, a, 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 an anger that goes back and forth. And both of those elements, the wonderful comrade quality and the rivalry were there. And finally, the anger took over. The rivalry took over. And it, and you, but you can see it all along the way. And it's, you know, that, um, I think it was Revolver. Revolver, uh, it doesn't matter anymore today because nobody looks at, well, hardly anybody uh, hears this music on the discs in which they were written. But it was really important. What was the last song on one side and the first song on the next? Because back to back, one composer on one side, the other composer on the other. So 
when when uh, John in the back of I think revolver on one side says that song. She says she said I know what it's like to be dead. You know you know that song, very strange song. And on the other side, Paul is commenting on that. He says, "Good day, sunshine." That's what Paul writes on the other side. It's like you know one of the morose. The other saying, no, well, let's have none of that. Good day, sunshine. Look at how that, how the, I am a walrus. You know, that it was a single, I am a walrus, which is, you know, fills with all kinds, all kinds of, you know, almost, uh, you know, sense to it. An intentional, you know, an, an intentional confusion of words are piled up in that song. And on the back side of that song is Paul saying, hello, goodbye. Yes, no, up, down. You know, just simple words. Let's write a song about simple words. So you could say that hello, goodbye is a commentary on I am the walrus. You know something, another thing it might be. I don't mean to say that isn't so. I think that's so. But another thing it might be is Paul commenting on the contention between the two of them. You say goodbye, I say hello. You say stop, I say go. Who knows? That is the you. You could say, you, John, say goodbye. I, Paul, say hello. And it's kind of true to their nature. Paul, very optimistic. And John, not so. John would have made a, yeah, yeah. It's it's, It's so many things. Like, when they in that maybe the greatest you know let's say single if you could call that ever made because the 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 one side is as good as the other is Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields. Penny Lane is Paul observing the world around him, and you know just just finding, you know just looking around the street where he you know either lived or lived close enough to enjoying every memory. But on the other side is this internalization of strawberry fields. It even starts with the words, let me take you down. Let me take you down. I've been to strawberry fields a few times. It's a wonderful place to be. I don't mean the original. I mean the one in Central Park. You know, it's across from uh, the 74th Street entrance, I think, or 72nd Street entrance into the park. You go there now on a, on a good day, Paul. It's wonderful. It's filled with people of all ages with their guitars and everyone singing. <laughs> well, nothing speaks. God makes you believe. Yeah, you can just you can just hear it, and and I think so. We just so appreciate your time, Saul Lillian Stein. I, I wish we had more time to spend with you today, but nothing speaks more eloquently than you about the Beatles and their music. And so I'm going to put you on the spot, but take us out with one final reference to. What might what you might consider to be one of your favorite Beatles songs? I think um, I'll say this is one of my favorites. I'll make it a shorter one. No, I won't make it a shorter one. I'll make it a longer one, and then you do what you have to do with it. Uh, hey Jude, Hey Jude is melodically uh, as fine an art song as uh, anything written by Franz Schubert. That is uh, McCartney's uh, McCartney's incredible melodic sense is almost unequaled in in music he probably has 30 songs all by himself 
that is, I mean, that is within the Beatles environment, but that he wrote, which are imperishable. And only Franz Schubert's got more than 30 of those. And so my love for and respect for McCartney, I'll just say, hey, Jude, that's a good example of it. Saul Williamson, thank you again for your time. What a pleasure it's been to talk to you. We'd love to have you back and talk a little bit more about music and opera and the Beatles and all of that stuff together. We're going to put links up to where our audience will find out more information about Saul Lilienstein and his work and his upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation, The Beatles, From Liverpool to Legend, a musical celebration. Saul Lilienstein, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Paul. I've loved every minute of this. Bye for now. My thanks to Saul Lilienstein for his generous time today and all of his knowledge about the wonderful happily familiar sounds of the early American rock and roll style of the Beatles. We talked a little bit about Buddy Holly. We hope you're leaving today with a smile on your face. Of course, we're grateful for your attention. Please join us next week. I can't leave without thanking the Smithsonian team for all they do to support our show. Thanks again to our wonderful audience on the Not Old Better show on KSCW. Be well, be safe. I look forward to our time together next week. Have a great week. Thanks, everybody.